Welcome to Wilton's Music Hall podcast, bringing to life the extraordinary history of the oldest grand music hall in the world, and its present as a world-class theatre and music venue. It is a special co-production with The Roundhouse. My name is Max Levine. You might not think of late Victorian music halls and early 20th century jazz clubs as the place for out and proud queer performers. But in this episode, we tell the story of two people who are just that. Susie Solidor was a famous erotic lesbian club singer, now lost to the annals of French history. And Fred Barnes, one of the most glamorous stars in the history of music hall. Two shows at Wilton's are telling their story. But before we talk about them, Holly Kendrick, the executive director of Wilton's, explains what she looks for in a show. I think that the two things that we are becoming known for, hopefully, and do rather well, are world-class music in all of its guises. So whether it's opera, classical music, cabaret, musicals themselves, um, gigs, or the kind of really exceptional bespoke visceral theatre where you see a piece here and and part of the appeal is that people want to see it because it's Wilson's because they want to experience it within the atmosphere of the building of the hall and I think those productions that we've been programming and I've had been lucky enough to have here um react to the building they're not um playing against it which I think is really exciting and certainly the autumn season I hope will really do that. Few shows have more potential to feel at home at Wilton's than the one Christopher Green is developing about Fred Barnes. Christopher is an associate artist at Wilton's and uses his experience to help shape the venue's programme. And now that great like comedian Fred Barnes singing two of his biggest successes. So my new uh, music hall obsession is Fred Barnes, who was a very famous music hall and then variety entertainer. Born in Birmingham, working class boy, saw Vesta Tilly on stage and decided that's what he was going to be. Now, ironically, Vesta Tilly is a male impersonator. And in a strange way, I think that's what he did. He became a sort of male impersonator because he sort of dressed up in a very flamboyant, over-the-top version of what a man is. Um, (laughs) Really, really exaggerated. And he had this crazy, crazy life. He was just way over the top. And basically, shone bright and and then declined very, 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 very fast, drank himself to death, died in the late 1930s. So he's a sort of a role model and an anti-role model all rolled into one. Christopher regularly performs at Wilton's and this new project will see him return to Grace's Alley to resurrect one of history's most flamboyant stars. He was openly gay. He was sort of queer, you know, in the, is what he would have been called at the at the time. And he just seems to have not cared, which is quite extraordinary because we're talking about something that was illegal, which is kind of fearless and really admirable and at the same time kind of crazy. Like, what, what was he doing, you know? Um, so, yeah, he had this very exaggerated form of... He wasn't dressing as a woman. He wasn't being a female impersonator. But he was sort of just being this uber-exaggerated version of 
of himself. Um, so I think that the phrase male impersonator is actually very, very apt for him. Um, only he wasn't really very male. He was sort of, you know, somewhere in the, in, in, in the middle. I think, obviously, we just call him gender fluid now. So he was well ahead of his time. It's a queer, queer world that we live in And if fortune plays a funny game Some get all the sunshine Others get the shame I don't know why so he was a mainstream star and he went up through the musical tradition at the sort of tail end of the musical in the teens and the and the 1920s and he was you know a, a, he was playing the, the the main halls and uh, and and getting quite high up uh, on the bills and he went to um, Australia and South Africa and played played in the musical circuit there so yeah he was a big mainstream star and then I think the sort of more underground queer venues were he would play when he was on his way down so I think that started in the late 20s and then in the 1930s I don't know if it's totally analogous, but it would be a bit like seeing a sort of, you know, like George Michael play at, at, in a gay club in the in the in the 90s. There would be a sort of slight in-joke about it. And is that the kind of period where you base your Fred Barnes on? Well, what I'm doing with mine is I'm doing a Radio 4 drama about it, which will cover his whole his whole life and then and then the live show, which I'm developing um, at, at Wilton's. And I want to be really non-linear about it. So I'm dipping in and out of different uh, stages of his life. Um, obviously, it's got to go somewhere, and it seems, you know, in a very one-dimensional, you know, amateur psychology way, it seems like, you know, that he turned that in on himself. He had a lot of self-hate, and was that inevitable? Who knows? That's what he did. He drank himself to death. Um, so yes, I'm interested in the end, but I'm also interested in these these other pivotal moments in his life. I don't know why, but since I was born, the scapegoat I. Ever since I was a tiny kid at school, the name has stuck to me. Yes, I, the black, black sheep of the family. His father hated him. Um, his mother had died when he was young. His father um, was a butcher. He was so embarrassed by the way that Fred was carrying on. So when Fred was starting to become a star, he, his father just couldn't stand it. And then there's this famous story about one night his father goes crazy and comes backstage in a big theatre in Hippodrome, threatening to kill him uh, with a meat cleaver in his hand. And he's pulled away from Fred and Fred's, you know, they're, they're separated. And the father goes home and, and cuts his own head off. I mean... It, <laughs> He basically slashes his own throat with such force that he almost severs his own head. It's an extraordinary thing. And Fred, as the only child, inherits the, the money because he owned a couple of butcher shops. And what does Fred do at that pivotal moment in his life? Uh, he spends it all on clothes and drink. And you sort of like go, oh, you know, that was, a, that was a sort of great crossroads. But no, he just went bigger and bigger and bigger and spent more money on ridiculous suits and big hats. Whatever, I'm not judging. It's kind of amazing. People <laughs> 
The image that really sticks with me is, as you mentioned, the marmoset on the shoulder. So he's paying thousands of pounds for these suits. I mean, like, extraordinary amounts of money, uh, especially, you know, in, in our money now, um, for these exquisite suits that are handmade. And then he's getting this little marmoset, this little monkey, which was apparently they were vicious little things and really horrible. And it's, and it's shitting down the suit because it's a wild animal. That's what it does. But Fred didn't care because he knew that that was like an amazing image, that everybody would talk about that. And he would walk in to, you know, to have dinner somewhere, fantastic, with this, with this little monkey on his shoulder. And he's got, you know, monkey shit down his thing. And he doesn't care because he knows that that is an amazing image. So that in itself is kind of really sums him up. Like he just doesn't care about the damage he's doing in a way. But then at the end of his life, he's got a chicken on his shoulder. And he's still so desperate for attention that he like he doesn't think he's enough just to walk into a pub and, and have a have a drink with someone. He's got to walk in with a chicken on his shoulder. And I suppose it is summed up by that 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 thing of he just obviously didn't think he was enough. You know, he got to give people something more. The marmoset or the chicken. I think he's the ultimate um role model and anti-role model at the same time. It's like, be brave, go for what you want. All of these great positive affirmations, but <laughs> don't destroy yourself in the process. And when I come back, the sheep that was black will perhaps be the widest of their Christopher Green who is developing a show on the life of Fred Barnes. Another show at Wilton's brings to life Susie Solidor. Susie was a lesbian club singer in the 1930s, and Jessica Walker brings her to life in All I Want Is One Night. Well, I just saw her name in an article in The Guardian about a book that had just come out, and I wondered why I didn't know who she was, because I thought I knew all of the 30s French cabaret singers, and uh, so I thought, well, who is this woman? And I looked her up initially, of course, on the internet. There's a lot of misinformation on the internet about Susie Solidor, like saying she was painted by Picasso, which she wasn't. And um, I thought, well, I'll delve a little more. Bought some of her CDs, uh, ordered them, and bought her biography, which was in French. Ploughed through it, took me a long time. (laughs) And decided I wanted to write something about her because she had such an extraordinary life. Um, I'd never come across anybody like her in terms of her freedom of expression and desire. She just sang what she liked and did what she liked and slept with who she liked, a lot of people. Mostly women, but not exclusively. Ouvre les yeux, réveille-toi Ouvre l'oreille, ouvre ta porte C'est l'amour qui sonne et c'est moi qui te la porte. I think she really titillated her audience because she sang her lesbian erotica, uh, all these songs that were written for her. She loved teasing her audience. She loved being the hostess. She was... It was her... Um, you know, her domain. Oh, you've got some of her music to go with this. That's probably not very helpful, is it? 
yes, so she loved being the hostess. It was like her little living room that she'd invited her guests to. She knew everyone by name. She would ask them, you know, how their children were, how their husbands were, etc. She, it really was. She was in control, and um, she made her audience feel special. Where she experienced criticism was when she went out of fashion, uh, and then she really did. She got bad press for the first time in terms of her creative offering. Um, so in the late fifties and the early sixties, uh, there were several newspaper articles saying, you know, tired old Susie Solidor singing about sailors. Um, and I think that was very crushing for her because she'd been used to being the toast of Paris. Of course, all that changed anyway in the Second World War because everything changed then and she kept her club open, but it was much more for entertaining the Germans uh, and the people who were still willing to go to the club with the Germans, which was a lot of people. But I think she was pr probably never the same in what she offered after that. And of course... She went before the Purge Committee at the end of World War II, so she came in for a lot of criticism over that. Um, I think she was a double agent, and I'm, I, there is evidence that she was helping Jewish residents of Paris to get false papers, but she was also very much in with the Germans uh, because they were her, her money and they were her livelihood. Ouvre mon cœur, ton cœur trop plein. J'irai le boire à ta bouche. Ouvre ta chemise de lin. Ouvre qu'on touche. I mean, she was mainly lesbian. Um, she had many, many women, several on the go at the same time. She had one faithful um, stalwart, Daisy. Um, who she was really horrible to and who stayed with her really until the end, but of course not exclusively. And they are buried together in Haute de Cagnes in the south of France, which I, I went to see the grave and someone lays fresh roses on the grave. It's very touching actually. But when you know how awful she was to Daisy, it feels quite strange that she even agreed to be buried with her. She must have just doted on her. Um, but she did also have two big affairs with men. One was with a, a luxury car dealer uh, and he gave her a lot of money and helped her open her first club in Paris. I'm not, I, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions as to what her motivation was in that relationship. And then this big romantic love that she had with the aviator Jean Melmoz, um, who was married and with whom there was absolutely no danger of ever having to have a domestic relationship it was pure high romance and then he was killed in a plane crash one of the first transatlantic flights i believe um so that kind of elevated him to this superhuman status in terms of her romantic feelings towards him but it was pretty convenient was she very unusual in being uh, an out lesbian performer? An LG, well, I suppose LGBTQ is a, a very modern term. Yeah. But having an alternative sexuality. 
Well, there were lots of people with alternative sexualities in Paris at that time, especially men. She was great friends with people like Jean Cocteau. And, um, uh, of course, there was Genet, and all of those people were there. There was Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas and the, the, the people who ran the Shakespeare & Co. bookshop. These were all gay, these people. Adrien Monnier, wasn't it? There were loads of them. There were lo it was absolutely full of gay people, most of them not French, actually. They came from America and Britain and the rest of Europe. Um, so there were a lot of gay people and a, a lot of lesbians in Paris uh, who were not at all in the closet. But I think the difference is that those other lesbians who completely rejected Susie Solidor, they thought they were really special and different for being gay. It was sort of part of their thing. Um, they they were avant-garde. Susie was mainstream. And that's the difference between her and a lot of those other people in Paris. She was a mainstream entrepreneurial, you know, commercial singer. And that's what I find fascinating about her, that she wasn't really bothered about this whole sexuality thing. She was mainly gay. She sang the lesbian songs because she thought it was cool basically I mean that's what I think that she just she could do it and she knew that people liked it and it gave her a bit of a thrill but I mean she just didn't really care Have you performed at Wilton's before? I have, yeah. What What did you perform? I performed in a very bizarre evening here, uh, run by Ducky. And um, I was part of a variety night in which I was singing a couple of male impersonator songs. So I was dressed as a man. Uh, but I tell you what, I was the straightest person here. They were so intimidating, the other acts. They were really terrifying. Um, I felt very out of my depth because it was just before Wilton's got refurbished and we were all in a big dressing room at the top and there were all these um, transvestites on roller skates. I forget what they were called, actually. They were quite intimidating and one of them gave me makeup tips and I wasn't sure I wanted them. <laughs> two incredible stories about two incredible performers. Thanks for listening and goodbye from Grace's Alley. Wilton's Music Hall podcast was produced and presented by me, Max Levine, with support from David Graham. It is a special co-production between The Roundhouse and Wilton's Music Hall.